Hello, it's Adrian here from Arcade Attack and welcome to the latest podcast. Today I'm joined with Matt Pritchard, a true Age of Empires legend. In this great interview, Matt talks about working on all the titles, how he had to compete against 46 other RTS games at the time. He talks about working at Microsoft, Ensemble Studios, loads of little stories about you know little, little hidden Easter eggs in the games. So much to get your teeth into. Plus, towards the end of the interview, he also talks about his time working at Valve and his views on a potential Half-Life 3. So sit back and enjoy a really lovely interview with a real retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Welcome back, listeners. It's Adrian here from the Arcade Attack podcast. I've got another really special guest today, a real Age of Empires legend, an ensemble legend, Microsoft legend, Matt Pritchard. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adrian. Glad to be with you. It really, no, we've, we, I've spoken to Ed Freeze before in the past. Uh, we've had other sort of developers in the game, like text interviews on, on Arcade Attack, but it's a, it's a real honor, Matt. So thank you. To, you know, Age of Empires was part of my... Uh, growing up actually so i can't can't wait to talk to you further about that oh, well thank you for having me on um let's get started yeah so could i start by asking how how do you actually get the opportunity to enter the the video game industry and do you remember the first sort of official game you ever worked on uh that i do uh but i'm also going to give you a little bit of back story information because it applies to a lot of people in the industry um at my age which is in my early 50s there is an entire cohort of people throughout the game industry that got their start in a similar way. And that was in the very late 70s, early 80s with the first 8-bit microcomputers. And a generation that was coming of age that had both the inclination and time. Um, but nobody really knew what the rules were tinkering on these things. Things like the BBC Micro and Spectrum, uh, the Apple II, the, the TRS-80, uh, the Atari 800. So... Um, I actually got my hands on a TRS-80 in 1978, wrote my first game probably six weeks after. I can still remember what it was. Incredibly simple. Uh, try to shoot down a, a UFO, which is represented by a block of pixels. Yeah. Um, uh, my first game that I actually sold was a game, uh, an adventure game written for a graphical adventure written for the Atari 800 in 1982. And like what I myself Many of my coworkers there at Ensemble Studios had gotten their start at the same time on the same sort of systems. And this turned out to be through pervasive at the industries at other companies where I was at Gearbox, Valve, and so on. You know, so many of us have a shared background. So I thought your, your listeners might find it interesting to realize that um, that early home computer revolution um, came along uh, at the right time for a lot of people to develop the interest in in games at that time, you know, starting out before really the industry even knew what it was doing, wild, experimental, and so on, um, inspired a lot of people to go into it. Um, so I came out of the 80s, uh, um, you know, having gone to university and, and off on my own, uh, working mundane programming jobs, but dreaming, wishing that I was making games. And, um, you know, I was, uh, prior to making games, I was um, working a job where I was developing 
income tax processing software. I, if, if you cannot imagine a programming job that has less room for creativity, mm-hmm. let me know, you know let me know what it is there to go from make the leap from there. But um, but I had wanted to make the leap into games, and I actually interviewed with Warren Spector um, for the Ultima 8 team down at Origins um, Systems a couple of years before I officially got into the industry. Wow. Uh, and this was in the early 90s, and um, um, at the time I was living in Garland, Texas, literally down the road from the offices of Apogee the people who were publishing the original Doom and all that. And I actually would go, when a new release was out, I would go down to their office and buy it directly from Steve Blackburn, one of the uh, uh, employees there um, at Apogee. And the people, um, you know, uh, John Romero, John Carmack uh, from id Software um, had relocated to be nearby and so on. There was this thing literally kind of happening around me. And I already had, you know, made games when I was a teenager, sold, you know, 20, 30, 40 copies, you know, it was still in my blood. But, you know, here I am, you know, doing uh, travel system reservation software, um, income tax uh, processing software, software to process, you know, um, the back end loan origination for mortgages, you know, all very businessy sort of things, you know, but the, the dream was there. And um, I was on the lookout for opportunities. And in 19, early 1996, there was a message posting on a Usenet forum um, looking for uh, programming talent for a brand new startup that was still in the um, embryonic stage. And this was um, for Ensemble Studios, really sort of before Ensemble Studios was a thing even. Yeah. And I reached out and made contact uh, with Mark Toronto, who posted that there, told him about my skills and what I had done. And during this time, uh, by the way, um, though I was not in the industry, um, I actually had some contact with it because I was um, releasing a graphics library for the very popular 256 color graphics at the time. Modex had been releasing that as free. And I also was writing articles for a brand new magazine called Game Developer Magazine, which had come out in the winter of 1993-94. And I started writing articles for them, I think, with their second or third issue and i wound up writing about a dozen articles total over the 90s so it wasn't like i you know i was already dipping my toes in Mm -hmm. you know writing about it you know getting out there and and keeping my eye out and anyway i made this contact you know had been keeping my eye out for local opportunities because at that time um due to just having gotten married i really couldn't um up and move and relocate to you know the city what was more of a hotbed uh um, plus you know there were interesting things going on around dallas at the time so Maybe four or five months later, I got a message back and um, from Ensemble, and they wanted to bring me in for um, an interview. And um, to make a long story short, obviously, the interview went well. But, but what had happened in the meantime was um, the original Ensemble came from Ensemble Corporation, which was a business consulting group that the Ensemble CEO had created a, as a company. And there were a couple of employees. They had always had the dream of making a game studio. You know, Tony Goodman, he's friends with Bruce Shelley. And um, at this point in time, it was people working out of their cubicles after hours, you know, on this project. And in between the time of the initial contact and when I was brought in, they had um, secured interest from Microsoft Mm. and were receiving funding, you know, to get the studio to get it launched. Prior to that, they were just really kind of, you know, they're working on a prototype, shopping it around, trying to figure out what to do with it. So I came in and interviewed with the very first wave of original employees. And in June 1996, came on board 
Ensemble Studios, and that brought me into it. And so my first modern era game, not counting the you know 8-bit games that I had made back in the early 80s, uh, was indeed um, Age of Empires. <laughs> oh, Matt, I'm going to talk about Ensemble and Age of Empires very soon, but just while while you're talking about uh, your background, I really appreciate that. Were you were you quite close ever to getting a job at Apogee or Origins? Was there interviews involved, or is it always ne- never really sort of happened? Um, I had an interview there at Origin. And I got a funny story um, about it because uh, I told you, you know, Warren Spector, uh, I interviewed with him, yeah, with him, directly with him. I got to meet Richard Gary and some of the other team. Uh, To be honest, the the team was kind of underpaid at the time, Um, (laughs) you know, and and they had been bought by EA. So there was a big disparity between, uh, you know, the the people who would would own the company and whatnot and the growing and, you know, they're trying to sort it out and, um, you know, and all this has to be inflation adjusted, but it was a, um, you know, a lot of young people with a lot of burning passion um, at the time. And so, you know, the, the, the interview, I didn't get the job. Um, but however, a few years later, um, I was um, leading a panel discussion at a GDC in, uh, in Austin event that uh, we were talking about Ensemble Studios, Studios hiring practices. And Warren Spector uh, came wandering in and was plopped down there kind of in front. And I wound up I wound up calling him out for not hiring me in front of this audience at GDC. And uh, but not in a bad sort of way. But I pointed out, you know, um, I was able to bring up the opportunities. You know, sometimes opportunities miss actually set you up for even better opportunities in the future and so on. Uh, But Warren has remembered me ever since for that. And, um, uh, you know, and whenever I've crossed paths with him and so on and and, and on good terms, um, obviously, you know, uh, for that, but uh, that as I, um, um, I was able to sort of kind of slyly get him back a few years later. You should have hired me. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it, in retrospect, Origin Studios, you know, wound up getting wound down by EA yeah. after Ultima Nine and everything. And so, winding up working on um, the Age of Empires, the unknown was actually better for me and my career and the opportunities that it, it presented. But you didn't know that at the time. Mm. Um, you know, I knew I had the fires in me. But like many a young person starting out, I didn't have the experience to kind of, it to to really um, kind of really understand things as well as I do now. That's oh, incredible. I'm, I'm a big fan of Origin Systems. That's uh, Bioforge. I don't know if you remember that game. I'm a oh yes. Fan. Um, it's a shame. I mean, it, I mean, even uh, well, Apogee is still around, of just about, aren't they? Or they they sort of changed their name, haven't they? Um, let's talk about Ensemble. I mean, that's your first. I know you said you released games before, but your first official game, Age of Empires. I mean. Absolutely incredible. I mean, I mean, what what was it like first getting your teeth into that particular job? Were you there from day one where they're working on Age of Empires? How did can you sort of describe the sort of early days of that particular title? Okay, um, you know, as I was saying, um, you know, this was the mid '90s, mm. so um, you know, a lot of technological innovation was going on. The transition to 32-bit Windows 95, um, and how at that time. Everything was written from completely from scratch, that we didn't have middleware to rely on and the things that, um, you know, uh, game developers today take for granted. Um, so, you know, we had, uh, they had put together, Ensemble had put together, you know, its initial team of people on its budget. And at that time, the, you know, the whole scope of things was smaller, but yet we had to make everything from the ground up. So my, my role was um, obviously as part of the programming team, um, I was given the... Um, tasks, specific tasks um, they figured out that I'd be best for, where it's going to be working on the graphics engine and the performance optimization. Um, I had been writing articles and doing a lot of work on um, optimizing code, 
um, and even writing things in assembly language, which was a pretty unusual skill back then, and it's, it's pretty much now extinct. But um, at the time, and again, viewers who are younger may not realize just how slow by comparison and how, <laughs> how dinky systems were back in the 90s. My, um, my development system at the um, end of uh, – before the age one was released – was a Pentium MMX that ran at 166 megahertz, and I had 16 megabytes of RAM. If you think about it, most people, the processor has more cash nowadays than my entire system did. <laughs> um, these were on spinning hard drives that were incredibly slow because of all the uh, head-seeking that went on. Um, you know, it, it incredibly antiquated. People tend to forget unless they can, somebody fires up a 25-year-old system and says, here, try to do a little development on it. And you go, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what happened? Um, so, so to describe it at the times, it was, it was an exciting time because, in a sense, you know, we were creating something from scratch. We, you know, we weren't um, continuing to iterate on something that a team had built before us or so on um, that you might get um, – Say somebody, uh, you know, somebody today is hired on by Ubisoft, and you're you're working on the um, the next Assassin's Creed game. Well, you're building on everything that came before, working with all you know, code, yeah. assets, legacy, and so on. Um, so, in some ways, that's nice because it kind of gives you very clear definition. When we were working on Age of Empires, um, it wasn't that clear about how the game should be, how it would turn out. It was a lot more experimental at that time. The real-time strategy genre was just coming into its own. Yeah. Um, the game, you know, was common that had influences heavily from Warcraft II and Civilization. Obviously, Bruce Shelley's um, association with Sid Meier and Civilization shining through, but also, you know, um, uh, Blizzard Entertainment's Warcraft II was a seminal game. Um, you know, and it really showed you know how the real-time could be executed. Fun. It wasn't the first real-time mm. uh, strategy game. Herzog uh, Zewi on the um, uh, TurboGrafx-16, I believe, is actually typically credited with that, but it was a case of, you know, where the execution brought it to another level. Um, in fact, it was so popular back then. Um, you may not remember this, but uh, print magazines, hell, a lot of our viewers or listeners may not remember print magazines. Print gaming magazine, I believe, Computer <laughs> Gaming World, had a cover that came out, um, the 50 real-time strategy games that were going to come out in 1997. Because, because every all these companies, all these people were like us, you know, influenced heavily by um, the first Command and Conquer mm. and uh, Warcraft II that had come out. And everybody's like, hey, we can do this. We can do this better. Now, in reality, there were only 47 games announced or listed in that issue. But that was, um, you know, not unlike when somebody sort of creates a new variation on a genre today and you see people kind of flood into it. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, you know, to put some context into it, Age of Empires was one of many um, and originally, you know, it was called Tribes internally. So, you know, we were still trying to figure out, you know, how much of the game is actually real time, how much is resource, how much, you know, what's the right mix, experimenting with the recipe, but also at the same time having to build the code and engine. Um, you know, it didn't really, not till the end, did it kind of all come together and have yeah. all the pieces there. Some of the things had to be taken on faith because there was no, you know, there was no pre-existing game engine or game to, um, you know, to work from, you know, to iterate for, further forward from. So that first one is kind of a unique birthing process. Now, what it was like there is we were a young crew then. You know, typically a bunch of people in their late 20s, a number of people were just married, a number were single. Um, there weren't really, you know, that many, uh, quote-unquote, old-timers there. There was, a, like I said, there was a lot of energy being the go-go 90s, kind of the dot-com, you know, people, mm. you, know, you know, shooting after the dreams, you know, the sky's the limit, um, kind of feeling all this new stuff happening. And, um, and we worked rather hard on it. 
In fact, the um, in 1997, I would say, you know, uh, the studio did um, a rather hellacious amount of crunch really? uh, for, for various reasons. Yes, for the last six months or so, um, it was very, very difficult. Now, it would be made up for and never crunch like that again. But we got to remember, at that point in time, Ensemble was an unknown. It hadn't made a single penny. Um, you know, there was nothing established out that. You're out there fighting. And remember, there's 46 other games mm-hmm. announced. And, um, you know, and, and people were passionate about it. But there was also uh, legitimate production deadlines working with Microsoft. Um, I should back up and say, originally, we thought the game was going to be done in one year and ship in Christmas 96, not Christmas 97. Yep. Um, we made some headway on it, but there was still a whole lot to go. We had something, you know, um, nine, ten months before that looked like Age of Empires, more or less. But as soon as you started playing all that, you realized it was it was actually quite a far way away to go. Um, Microsoft took a look at it and originally said, you know what? Yeah, this is turning into more than we thought, but we like what we see. We see something there that is we believe in. And the people we were working with at Microsoft and the gaming division and whatnot, you know, um, there was a belief in there that, like, this needs to be cooked longer. It's going to make a better product. And... Um, you know, so and, and I got to say, you know, this is one of the times when when everybody there gave their all, and it truly did. Um, everybody's on the teams; their interests were aligned at making the best product, um, and uh, there was sort of this camaraderie. It was it was really something to experience. And so, you know, we worked we worked our tails off. Um, myself personally, like I said, I was working on the graphics engine. I, there was an overhaul that took me about nine months to do that when we came back with the graphics engine, it was an order of magnitude faster than the previous one and solved a lot of these rendering issues. So, you know, there weren't visual glitches on the screen and so on and so forth. Um, in fact, it was written all, the, the core graphics engine was written entirely in assembly language. It was a huge thing. Um, what many people don't know is at that time, I was having lunch with another writer, by a guy by the name of Michael Abrash, who was working over at id Software. And we'd get together every couple of months over Mexican food. And he was working on the, um, assembly language uh, for the renderer for a little game called Quake. And we would actually, you might, you know, and we would actually trade notes on what we were doing. And I've told this to some people before, and it's absolutely true that one, some of his research. I remember one time, you know, you know, I'm sitting here eating, you know, chips on my queso dip and whatever, and he's commenting on some very interesting things that on the Pentium processors, how. Um, you know, there would be the, how the processor would still be running while it was waiting on memory. And I kind of went, aha, you know, and had a little, you know, one of many little light bulbs yeah. go off and went back and took that little tidbit, and incorporated it into our design. Um, and one of the things I'm very proud of, of was when we finally shipped Age of Empires, it ran really, really well on low end hardware, probably better than any sort of other comparable game. Most games at the time, Warcraft 2, Starcraft, um, uh, you know, Total Annihilation, Dark Rain, you know, a lot of these others were all running at a resolution of 640 by 480. You know, and we support multiple resolutions up to 1024 by 768, mm. and our default was 800 by 600 out of the box. You know, anybody now looking at their, you know, 4K screen is going, oh, that's <laughs> like postage stamp. But <laughs> it was a big deal back then to move that many pixels. And it was interesting at the time, you know, that we, you know, we had to actually invest effort into it. You know, um, I wound up optimizing other systems like our line of sight system, which I would later write about for the Game Programming Gym's a series of books. Um, things, you know, various systems where we were spending a lot of time so that we had, so that the game would actually have enough time to not only put graphics on the screen, but to run a decent amount of AI and uh, control so that we could have, you know, a very lively world with a lot of things going on in it. Um, and I, I touched a whole number of systems in there. 
Um, but you know, the graph is probably the biggest thing that I was responsible mm. for a lot of subsystems. Um, and, and also uh, our art tools. I came. I created all the file formats, the proprietary file formats used for the images and the, the, the package files and other things in the game. Um, and so some of my time was spent creating graphical tools for the artists who were actually started out using um, uh, DOS batch files, where you know yep. typing on a command line. And, and, and artists are not you know not all that very visual, so you know they were needing things to see. You know how is it actually going to look? And um, you know, and if I'm giving you a picture here, it's of a studio building the initial building blocks, starting from nothing, building yep. up the infrastructure. And it wasn't just me. It was everybody else. I, I have to say, you know, this was truly a team effort. Everybody was giving their all uh, for this. That was, um, again, as I said, it was, it was a really kind of a special time and a special camaraderie, um, you know, you know where, where everybody was in the same boat together, and they were determined that they were going to make this. Now, to answer another one of your questions, as we got near the end, we started to see things come together. And it really did increase this feel as we we're coming in the last, probably I'd say the last two months that yeah. like, hey, we're really on to something here. This is going to be good. I want to, you know, we want to see what other people think of this. We want to see, you know, I'd love to have a hidden camera over there, you know, at Blizzard <laughs> when they, when they, you know, roll this up. And, and um, there's actually a story out on the web. When we showed off Age of Empires um, at, uh, I believe it was, was it CS that year uh, at the trade show? Um, you can find out about it if you look for Blizzard talking about with StarCraft. They had their quote-unquote Age of Empires moments. When they saw our visuals and graphics, um, StarCraft was originally slated to come out about the same time Age of Empires 1 was. Mm. Uh, but the StarCraft guys took a look at it and said, you know, we got to up our game. Um, you know, they publicly acknowledged this. You can find it on the web here. It was reposted not that long ago. Um, that, like, you know, they went, they went back and said, you know, okay, we're going to change the look of our game. And, and you, know, um, you, know, you know, they're reacting to the competition from when they see it. So... Um, I take great pleasure in that because yeah. it actually helped that it wound up being about six months between the release of Age 1 and StarCraft. So gamers, you didn't really have to choose. You could get Age 1, six months later you could get StarCraft. I think that helped the audience reception uh, for that. Um, and another thing that was very different back then was um, it, we became uh, good friends. A lot of us uh, at Ensemble became friends with people at Blizzard. And later on, um, we were actually on each other's betas. We were sending oh, wow. uh, a copy of beta CDs over to uh, people at Blizzard to try out, you know, as we're working on H2, uh, you know, we were getting, you know, Warcraft 3 beta, uh, beta CDs back over. <laughs> um, it was a very different game. Corporate environment now would not allow that. But it, this was the wild 90s. We were yeah. all younger, smaller companies, more in, much more independent. And we didn't see each other as like a life or death competition. I mean, you, you, you know, you saw your good buddy do something. Now you're like, okay, now I'm going to top that. And, um, you know, it, and it was uh, it was an exciting time. And I think that kind of, you know, the, the willingness to actually, you know, uh, put each other on betas and stuff, you know, it was just part of that attitude of the time. Um, it was pretty it was pretty rocky. You know, the dot com crash hadn't happened yet. And <laughs> so it kind of soured the industry. But but, um, you know, I hope that listeners here kind of understanding, you know, getting a little bit of a feel for like, yeah, it was a little bit different era. If you remember it back then, yeah, it was. And if, if you, you weren't around back then, you know, realizing that, you know, that. Uh, the vibe and uh, the dynamics do evolve over time that's amazing now that's amazing um i mean blizzard uh, westwood studios as well incredible competition but it sounds like there's a mutual respect fair play oh absolutely absolutely and um there was a willingness even among various people to share information mm. we didn't really have you know the internet was really a new thing about the time that this was getting started and we didn't have everything kind of published online instantly like we did um, so professionally, many of us, again, like how I, you know, was having lunch, uh, you know, with somebody from Did Software, um, 
there was a there was a, a willingness to share. Hey, we're doing cool things. You know, you didn't see it as a threat. There wasn't a trade secret. It was or anything like that that you had to worry about um, because it really it always came down to execution. You know, uh, multiple games can be successful in just about any genre um, if they're well executed. Yeah. A few other things, but but you know that the quality of the product um, you know always has a tendency to win out. I've got to ask actually really quickly: out of those forty-six RTS games that you saw that were planned out for the year, was there any you were particularly worried about that you think all oh, these could be proper competition? Because there's a lot, of, there's a big number there, isn't there? <laughs> um, outside of StarCraft, not yeah. really. Oh, fair um, enough. One thing. You know, the, I can think of you know of, of the big ones of that era. You know, there's the Warcraft who was already out, obviously. Yeah. Starcraft, um, uh, Age of Empires. Then there was you know um, Dark Reign and um, how was it Total Annihilation, for example. If you mm. looked at the settings and the dynamics, you know, everybody was sort of carving out their unique niche. Mm. We didn't feel like anybody else was trying to um, directly compete with us. Like go for the audience that was also interested in more of like a civilization experience, historical experience. Um, there were a lot more that were like in the fantasy experience or especially in the sci-fi, like, um, like downtown, there was John Romero's Ion Storm and they had a, uh, one, um, uh, it was it's called something, um, Storm over Gift 3. Um, I forget which, but you know, it was, it was kind of more of a CNC style yep. one, but, but they were all sufficiently different enough that, that, you know, we felt like that, you know, nobody's going to like, you know, basically put a clone out. And, um, if you think about it today, like. Let's say you come up with something that's a smash hit, a Flappy Bird or a 2048, you know, which is originally threes or whatever. How many clones come out literally almost instantaneously? <laughs> it's a joke, you know? isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so you get drowned out. But like, like that, you know, we did not worry about it in that respect. That we, you know, we thought, you know, we were creating a game that had a great feel, a great what we now consider a core game loop, interesting decisions to make, and um, a good sort of a, you know, rock paper scissors on the balance and whatnot, you know, something that had some replayability. And, um, you know, we felt like a lot of things were coming together. And um, it was really the quality of all of the original team from the the, the art, the uh, design, the audio, the programming, um, you know, were really all producing, uh, I think, you know, exceptional results relative mm-hmm. to the competition of the time for, for what could be done. You know, like there was, um, there were a couple of areas we got, uh, dinged for on the game a little bit, um, which we certainly came back in, in the next game, you know, with a vengeance to uh, to rectify. But um, y- you know, most people look at the original game and you can't and you can't say, well, there's this one big weakness in it, you know, that kind of mm. really knocked it down. You know, is it, you know, is everything was was you know pretty good to great about it, um, and and so it was a very you know it was able to be a strong contender in the marketplace, and I, I attribute that to um, you know again the entire team and uh, what they brought forward. Brilliant. I mean, I have to ask, Matt, was there any ideas you had for the game or any other future Age of Empire games or expansion packs that you fought hard to get in that didn't get any any, any ideas that were banded about? And was there any sort of disagreements throughout the sort of different games you've been working on? Or Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to have trouble recalling, but there were so many ideas that we tried yep. that um, to understand the development of this game, you know, one of the things from a, from a gameplay standpoint is there's a tremendous amount of iteration that goes on trying things and seeing if they work out or don't work out, you know, if they make the game better. There's so many things that sound good on paper or on the whiteboard, and then you put them in the game, and it takes you all of, like, you know, 15 seconds to go, this sucks. 
<laughs> yank them out. I mean, you know, I, I'm just trying to vaguely to remember. You know, we had things like archers standing on top of walls um, in, in in the uh, Age of Kings. You know, we had uh, much larger sort of uh, home cities and fewer other buildings. Um, you know, we've always had the question about like flying units. I, I can say that there was a design for a second expansion pack early on to the um, uh, Age of Kings. That would have uh, been sort of a myths and myths and monsters, mm. um, fantasy units, which would also maybe include flying units. Which um, I think uh, Rise of Nations, I think, actually did something like that later on. Um, trying to remember, you know, that we'd kind of go, you know, you, we already have kind of the Middle Ages setting, and um, it wasn't too hard to not just go with the Tolkien-esque sort of fantasy setting, but maybe you know to introduce elements from, um, yeah. you know, uh, East Asian um, mythology and you know other parts of the world. There, there was our designers were like, you know, there's actually a whole lot more out there than just orcs and dragons that could make this pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one, you know, for various reasons, that's kind of, um, that may have inspired a bit, you know, the direction that led to the spinoff to Age of Mythology and where they wanted to go with that, though change the setting. Uh, but it was actually thought about as a um, expansion pack um, uh, for Age of Kings, uh, bit briefly, you know, it's um, uh, as far as uh, other features go, I really wish I could remember more. There were just so many of them. And sometimes features came about accidentally or organically. Um, you know, I can think of a couple where they were like, you know, put them in the code right now and play test them in today's build and ask for forgiveness later. Uh, one of which was uh, sharing line of sights with your allies. Um, mm. Something I can remember doing that was uh, I was in the code realizing, you know, you know, you could share you could share a line of sight between people in multiplayer games uh, basically for free. I wonder what happened if I enabled that. <laughs> you know, we did a play test and everybody's like. Sounds great, and then a designer says, "You know, we should make that a research, you know, researchable technology." And um, in, in many people um, actually had ideas like that. We had uh, one of the programmers, um, Tim Dean, um, was sort of the master at the game balance and understanding the ramifications. There were so many times that we had to say, "Okay, and now in today's build, we've made these changes," and Tim would immediately sort of weigh in, like, "That's not going to work," and we'd be like. Oh, come on, Tim, we just got to try it. And then Tim would immediately take whatever loophole he saw and wipe the board of everybody else with it to drive his <laughs> point home that, like, you just broke all the balance. And, uh, um, you know, it got, to the, and it got to the point with his reputation that if he said it's not going to work, you know, kind of like, okay, we believe you. And, and uh, um, accept that. But, we, we, but many people, you know, as, as the company would grow, we'd have more people that had a, a really great eye for that kind of stuff. But iteration, we tried so many things, you know, um, a lot of them would be more mundane, adjusting hit points, adjusting uh, bonuses, you know, um, and things so that, uh, you know, so that it was actually worthwhile to go down research paths or that, like, uh, you know, the thing when you when you have such a variety of units in a game, you don't want there to be, like, the one true path. Just create this unit and spam it, and then the game's over. You know, you don't, yeah. that, that, that search for balance, and because, and as soon as you change in one thing, it has an impact, you know, a ripple impact on everything else. And, um, uh, you know, and it would uh, it would especially show in the later games where you know there'd be um, you know mechanics of like movement and you know can you put things inside of this thing, um, like um, and, and there are small you know and again other small details um, that like some people know like in the original Age of Empires game if you upgrade your catapults all the way um, they will flatten force and so you could build if you, ah. you had the uh, the tech that enabled you to build it all the way up you could actually suddenly you know cut a road right through a forest in you know a matter of fifteen seconds. <laughs> That's good. Well, yeah, brilliant. Now, that's really interesting stuff there. Um, Age of Empires 2 is often regarded as probably, the, well, arguably the best in the series. I mean, would you agree with that, Matt? Would you think Age of Empires 2 is, is sort of pinnacle in your in your view? I 
would agree with that. And yep. a lot of people internally did. And to understand kind of how, how we thought about one, in Age of Empires 1, as we were going along, we had so many ideas of things we wanted to do and implement, but just didn't because we didn't have the time, the resources. You know, we knew we had to ship mm-hmm. this game eventually. You couldn't be in production, you know, like Duke Nukem forever and literally take forever. Um, <laughs> you, know, you had to ship. And, um, and, and at some point you have to, you know, you have to call, you know, draw a line down and, and, and rein in your scope. So um, the team had finished Age of Empires 1. It, it received very, very well. Yeah. And... Um, the uh, you know we were growing and there was the success you know so the studio would have more you know, could hire more people had more resources and you know and the game exceeded all expectations Microsoft had so you know we had enthusiastic yep. support from our publisher and developer and so you know you know we want to go bigger and they're like great <laughs> let us know um, <laughs> and you know in a very co- and at that time you know it was, it was just a, an interesting year because it was just so cooperative to work with them and um, the um, uh, so and because we didn't change engines. And we weren't having to rebuild a lot of that. Remember, I was talking about middleware and the technology. Yeah. Because we were able to build upon what we did before, we were really able to go after improving, polishing, upgrading, and uh, and we put a lot of engineering effort as well as content design effort. You know, bigger worlds, bigger graphics, improved pathfinding. Uh, you know, we totally overhauled the pathfinding and the AI, for example, to the areas that were considered um, of the the weaker than the rest of um, on H one, for example. And, um, you know, with taking advantage of the timeline and, you know, the, the music and having, you know, the, the voiceovers and the, the things and, and just, you know, all the different aspects of the game going at it to build upon it. And, and there was an enthusiasm, a feedback loop in the studio. People, you know, people hadn't burned out on it. You know, they're, they're really like, you know, I, I really want to do this. I, I, I want to do this even better. I want to show the world. And um, we let, and then also there was timing for the type, for what the game was and when it came out. So internally, uh, and I attribute this quote to Harder Ryan, um, who was a CEO there at, um, at Ensemble, was um, that H1 was a good game, but H2 yep. was a great game, you know, and we won you know, various, a whole bunch of Game of the Year awards and, and whatnot, you know, and just, you know, um, and it was, again, partly, you know, like I said, the right game at the right time with the right technology for what people had there and the right topic matter. Um, you know, for broad appeal and the history, you know, and it just like so many things came together. But in reality, it was, you know, four years of work to get there yeah. and, and, and building upon everything we learned um, and especially also having a game released. You know, your first game, you only have a limited number of people who can, you know, debate, test it and, and so on. Um, but once you actually get it out there, you get a feedback and perspective on yep. what you did, you know, that you just can't do. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're developing it, you're a little too close to the tree to see the forest mm. uh, or, you know, kind of thing. You, you've been with it for so long that maybe some things don't get you. And then, you know, like the designers, um, you know, we thought we were g- good at playing the game, age one when it released. But uh, very quickly we discovered there are people out there that just blew us away. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I myself, I was probably the third best player of age one um, when it was released. And I got out playing online multiplayer, you know, literally. And within... I'd say three or four days. Um, <laughs> I was a below average player. <laughs> I mean, it just you know, I was good at beating my uh, my coworkers, but people were were seeing things and using strategies and evolving and um, you know just rapidly, you know, and um, and being able to to incorporate that into our development, you know, it helps because not only do you want to create a great game technically, you want to create a great game in terms of the decisions you make. The um, you know the balance of it, what it you know what it offers you, the options it offers, and I think that's one of the things that led to you know the fact that for years people were coming up with new and different strategies and continuing to evolve it, you know, and that's the mark of 
um, you know, a whole lot of refinement going into it to, to, that it could be so flexible. Uh, people lose interest if a game, you know, gets distilled down to like, and this is how you optima- optimally beat it, and there's no way to improve mm. from that. And then people kind of like, okay, well, I'm done with it. I've, I've seen all it has to offer me. <laughs> no, well, it must be a, a really good thing to see. Obviously, people trying to lose new things that you weren't expecting. I mean, Age of Empires 2, people still play it today. They, well, they still play all the Age of Empires, let's be honest. But it, 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 sort of, it, it sort of attracts the amateur players, the casual players, the real highly competitive. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. How Do you have to almost pinch yourself that the game you made a good number of years ago is still played so much today? I'm humbled by it. Mm. And to be honest, it was the being humbled by it that got me involved with trying to resurrect the series digitally. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, because uh, I don't know if you know, but there is a post out there on the uh, Age of Empires Heavens forum um, that uh, I was the person responsible for um, getting Microsoft interested in what eventually became Age of Empires HD edition. Yes. And, and re-releasing it. That's that's fairly well known among insiders in the community. Um, that while I was, uh, after moving out to the West Coast, that for more than a couple of years, I was knocking on doors at Microsoft to see if there was any interest in doing a digital re-release. And um, at that time, they're kind of like, well, that's an old 2D game. I don't really know, you know, whatever. But, but eventually that happened. Um, but one of the things, I'll tell you, that got me, that, that, that sort of pushed me over the edge was, was constantly bumping into people who had that reaction, that love of the game. Um, I had moved out here and gone to work at Valve Software, which is great company, obviously, great games and all that. But one of the things that surprised me was several people at Valve were huge Age of Empires fans. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, but, but you just did Half-Life and Portal and Team Fortress and all these others, you know, and, <laughs> and why are you being a fanboy on me for, you know, kind of like, it, it was really humbling to realize, you know, how far and wide spread the, um, the love and appreciation for Age was. And, um, you know, and that was one of the things that, that really helped convince me that, you know, that, that there's still a fire for that. And then, you know, discovering that, you know, if anything, it, it, um, it never really died out and there was actually a community growing stronger. Uh, prior to the time of HD being released, I did not realize that independently people were playing it competitively multiplayer. There were still mm. people working on catching the game and that there were tournaments that even had prizes exceeding $10,000. <laughs> um, you know, these were happening, you know, and they weren't officially sponsored by Microsoft or anything, but they were happening out there. And, the, you know, that is a, that is not a dying scene. That is a, no. you know, a thriving community. And, um, um, you know, it kind of blew me away to realize that, that so much was out there. But, you know, it helped convince me that, you know, hey, there's still something to this. And, you know, these games are worthy of being brought forward into the digital age. No, brilliant. I mean, you spoke, well, I guess, did you leave Microsoft? Now, I, I think you, you told me earlier that you worked on Agent Plus 3 for a little bit, then you sort of left uh, Microsoft. Is that right? I Yeah, I left Ensemble in 2004. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, for various reasons, a, a number of the original team did. Um, to put it kind of bluntly, you know, once the company was purchased by Microsoft, um, part of the environment and the culture changed as we were absorbed. You know, we were we were a studio of 50 people, and now we were part of a 150,000-person company. Yeah. And, you know, some of the directions. And also there was some burnout that was going on. You know, people have been working on RTS games for eight-plus years and just a whole number of things. Um, you know, again, oftentimes, you know, why does a band break up and something like that after a run? You know, there are various, you know, a myriad of reasons uh, but for myself, it was time to move. It was it was time to move on. Um, also, actually, I should I'll I'll own this. You know, during that time period in the 2000s, I went through an extremely difficult time in my personal life. Didn't help mm-hmm. me one bit. And um, 
um, you know, and there was definitely a need to move on and for, for some change. But um, despite all of that, obviously, there's no escaping the, the love of my life in Age of Empires series games. So, yeah. But, um, um, you know, even the studio itself, you know, a lot of people were interested in doing other things. Um, it was kind of unfortunate because the way Microsoft had their studio system at the time, they sort of had a studio for each genre. And, um, you know, that there was, um, I know, you know, there was some work there going on, like, hey, we should be looking into doing an MMO or something like that. But, but generally speaking, though, like, you're not the MMO studio, you're the RTS studio. Yeah. And so it's kind of why, like, even though Halo Wars was on the Xbox 360, it was still on RTS. Ensemble was sort of pigeonholed that way. And, um, you know, there were people inside that said, yeah, I did an RTS game, but I've always wanted to do an RPG. Right? You know, I really love to do an action shooter or, you know, from a professional point, you know, like, you know, you've done years in the trenches. I want to do something different now. And, and that's OK and normal. So there was um, I think, you know, many, some people moved on just to pursue specific dreams uh, of, of doing other things, uh, you know, for, and others moved on for various other reasons. So um, and, and you know, it, it's just one of those things that happens. But um uh, you know, uh, right. be inter- I, I, I meet people who still go like, why, why did Ensemble Studios stay in business? And, mm. you know, I said, well, you know, 25 years of producing RTS games would probably burn out most people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, that that's incredible. Um, but you still kept fighting the fight to get Age of Empires HD avail- made. So credit where it's due, Matt. I mean, you, you, good on you. Definitely. I, again, I, I have to credit the fans of the game. Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of thought, like most people do, you know, you, games from 10 plus years ago kind of tend to fade away. And when I was realizing that, you know, you know, you, you kind of knew, yeah, well, we had a great game, we had a hit, but how many hit songs actually become a staple on radio, you know, more than a decade later kind of thing? You know, it was very mm-hmm. unusual, the, the response I was getting, like I said, and, and, and that helped motivate me. And I had a love of the first two games, the 2D games. Um, obviously, I wrote the graphics engine for those and... Um, you know, a bunch of other things, but, you know, I, I was more connected to the first two games just from having been involved just so deeply um, on those. And, and so that kind of uh, converged in saying, why isn't there a, uh, a digital version? Um, although the truth is, and that's what posted, we actually had made a version that did not require a CD. There was a special OEM build of Age of Empires 2 um, that came pre-installed on Dell computers for a little while, a certain Dell computers. And I knew that we had had a CD version that was uh, perfect for doing digitally, and that was part of the original pitch, you know, saying, like, mm. you know, why don't you offer up the back catalog? And, and another thing people probably, you know, if, if you haven't been paying attention, you know, back then, this was the late 2000s, um, remasters weren't all the rage like they are now. Like, yeah. right now, we're like, oh, this was really, you know, this was a really notable game. How come there isn't a remaster yet um, <laughs> today? You know, so, so again, remembering, you know, change over time. Back then, it, it really wasn't on anybody's radar, and especially also the transition to 3D. People hadn't think, well, do you really want to play an old 2D game? Well, the answer was a lot of people were like, oh, heck yes. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I bought it recently on Steam again. It's it's brilliant, I have to say. It's still it's still so popular. Um, Matt, I've got to tell you, I've got to ask you, actually, because I've noticed the first reason I, I got in contact with you is I, I saw your posts on a Facebook group. I've got to give it credit. It's called the Age of Empires Wallow Wallow Posting. Um, you, It's pretty clear over the years you've built up a huge treasure trove of Age of Empire goodies, merchandise, limited edition games. How can you just before we talk about the Facebook uh, and sort of the auction you, you got involved in? Uh, how did you come across all these amazing items and did you just collect them randomly or what happened? Well, actually, 
a lot of them came from working on the games. So <laughs> what would happen would be is when we would ship the games, uh, most everybody would come around and we'd get like five boxed copies. You have to remember, back in the day, a boxed copy was the only way you could get the game. You know, they, um, and, and I'll put a little quirk out here on this, or a little comment of uh, something that happened. When Age of Empires 1 released, um, it sold better than expectations, and, and it was up in the charts, the NPD charts at the time. And then right before Christmas, there was a big drop-off. What happened was is they ran out of stock. Oh, no. And you had, and, um, you had to physically produce CDs in a factory, print the manuals, you know, put them in a box, and ship them unlike today's digital distribution. Mm. So there was a lag time for them to go, holy crap, we sold out, and to get more on the shelves. And there was, you know, that doesn't happen today with everything being digital yeah. um, uh, with that. But, but we would get, the employees would get digital copies. And um, in addition to that, uh, again, Tony Goodman, um, the, the CEO of Ensemble, um, you know, had a culture where, and this was much more common then, we had a lot of swag internally. Um, we were always making new T-shirts for everybody on the team or new clothing items. And, um, and there would be awards, like um, I have a plaque for um, selling a million copies of Age that was kind of done with Microsoft. It's like suitable for framing. It's up on the wall. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Um, and we'd get some of these you know, things in Lucite or whatever. There were actually a number of awards. I didn't really put pictures up. But in the process of working on it, you know, a lot of trinkets um, of our success in, in the products stuff were actually, you know, sent to the studio because we wanted to actually get our hands on the physical, the yeah. physical end result because we didn't, you know, we didn't make it there. It got shipped off to a publisher who shipped it off to a manufacturer, and so that's how a lot of that stuff came. And a lot of the stuff I posted was um, a lot of the clothing I had. I never threw it, threw it away unless it wore out, and I wound up with literally crates full of um, ensemble items um, plus things that were hard to come by, like. Um, I have, uh, for the original Age of Empires game, I've got like seven different language releases of it. You know, the, the yep. Japanese box, the Italian, the Spanish, you know, which, it, you know, where you were back then, you know, in the United States, you're not going to get the Italian version. Never. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and so on. So so a lot of that stuff came about that way. And it was actually a lot more common than to have swag, you know, physical items made. Um, some things we would create to go to, t to trade shows. One of the things uh, Ensemble, uh, again, and I go, go credit all the way back up to its management chain, um, did was that they would take the entire team to the big conferences like GDC mm. and the CS, the Consumer Electronics Show. They were like, everybody got to go to at least two conferences a year. And so one of the things we do is we would all you know, have matching shirts. So you were there at uh, CS, and I keep seeing these people in Ensemble Studios shirts running around here. They're everywhere. Um, that's because you know there's there's 50 of us all you know you know wearing our uh, wearing our, our, our company swag and so on. And um, uh, you know that was that was certainly was part of it. And then you know with the success of it, you know Microsoft made um, a number of things too. Like um, I think that appeared in the post uh, the Facebook group. Uh, one of them was as I had baseball caps nice. for the various games. You know, and I would get them. I don't wear baseball caps, so. What had happened was a lot of the stuff I had put away in crates and boxes and had been carrying it around with me for more than two decades. And lately I've been going on a trend called, uh, if you know the term, Swedish death cleaning, which is, <laughs> which is a getting rid of all the stuff you don't really keep anymore. You know, kind yeah. of goes in. There's other things right now, the Marie Kondo, you know, get rid of the declutter, get rid of the stuff that does not bring you joy. But I realize I have too many of these things. There Now, there are a number of things I'm keeping that are memories. Um, mm. We have these leather bomber jackets that everybody at Ensemble had that but the, just covered in patches to represent the years you were there, the products you worked on and whatnot. They're really cool looking. Like That oh, one nice. is an you know, example of something I'm keeping, uh, some of the awards. But I realized I had so many things that it was time to call these down. 
And um, I was on the Wola posting group for a while. Um, I don't really partake in the groups where, you know, like they're, they're always discussing the minutia of fine strategy or whatever. I found that group to be uh, both funny and irreverent and kind of a good place to hang out to see people who are fans of the game. But, you know, they're not, you know, not debating if this one bonus should be a plus one or a plus two to death kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and so I thought, you know, I, I, you know I'm thinking of, of donating or getting rid of these. I wasn't really sure. And um, so I thought, I'll just post some pictures up there. And then the reaction people had just blew me away. They wanted to see, okay, they want to see more. They want to see more. I better get more stuff out. I can get the lighting, get the pictures, get, you know, post it all up so they can see. Um, just showing them a lot of the, you know, the range of the yeah. clothing, a range of the items. And I'm digging through the box and occasionally go, oh, wow, I had forgotten I even had this. Um, <laughs> you know, and, um, uh, and that led to sharing a lot of the trinkets because, again, a lot of that stuff was sort of representative of a, a different time, an mm-hmm. era where – um, stuff like that was more commonly made that companies, you know, would would um, as we like to say, you know, would have more swag to give away at trade shows, more mm. stuff to give their employees. You know, it was just kind of more of a thing you did. And now everything's kind of gone virtual. Um, you know, mm. you know, and and um, yeah. every, everywhere in the industry, you don't see that often. What you do see uh, occasionally now, you know, is, is much more deliberate. Like, oh, we're going to make some interesting things and put it in the collector's edition and sell it for you know a much larger price. You know, yeah. um, whatever. Um, that's, that's about all I do see now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that got me started with the group and showing that in the interest. And um, I don't know if this is your next question or not, but, you know, um, that led to an idea of mine to um, um, uh, sell off some of the things uh, to make you aware to people in the group and raise the money uh, for charitable donations. That um, Good on uh, you. Yeah. That we usually, my wife and I, you know, um, have, have been making um, uh, for uh, a number of years. It kind of goes it, – kind of goes back to the whole stormy dog cheek and everything else but uh um the um uh, you know and i was blown away by the community so i think you have some more questions about specifics that came up from that so i'll let you uh yeah I'll let you guide the conversation here well i one of the things that i didn't know existed i don't know if they came to the uk was the sort of toy range and the toy trebuchet and um that uh, was there a whole toy range announced and uh, released for the for the for the no. lovely armies? No, okay. So, so let me give you the story about this. So what, to clarify what you're referring, um, there was an item I posted, which was a, a t- unassembled plastic toy trebuchet that could actually fling these little plastic balls. Yep. It was maybe, you know, as, you know, six inches, you know, um, I've, you know t- I don't know, 20 centimeters or so, how, however tall it is. And, you know, and um, it was still new in the bag. And, uh, you know, it had the – you could see the packaging. It was the Age of Empires and whatnot. Well, the, and the story behind that was is that was from a test run of a toy that Microsoft was making to put – include with the original collector's edition. The original collector's edition was in a large, oversized box, not hugely oversized, mm. and it was limited to 75,000 copies, and they were numbered. That was the first Age of Empires collector's edition that collected um, the first two games and their expansions. And um, Microsoft, you know, thought – there were people that thought this is a really cool idea. And they did a test run of these toys, made 1,000 of them. And even though there was a disclaimer printed on the thing in there, Microsoft legal department nixed the idea of including them because of the small parts and the choking hazard. Yeah. And um, it's not the first time Age of Empires was actually impacted by um, a decision from Microsoft legal. One thing to understand is a company of Microsoft size and stature gets sued regularly by people, um, if nothing else, just hoping for a small settlement to go away or whatnot. And so they are. A, they have a very large. You know, they are very large attack surface, very deep pockets, and they have. You know, they take a very uh, conservative and careful attitude, not to just like open themselves up for yet another lawsuit. Um, yeah. To come up against them. So that 
nix the idea of the trebuchet toys and instead a pack of trading cards was um i believe what was included with the collector the seventy-five thousand collector's editions uh. now what to do with that 1,000? Well, they shipped a bunch of them down to Ensemble Studios. They went around the office offering everybody to take up to five each. And actually, over the years, I'd given away a couple of them. And I think um, I'm down to my last one. I might have another one buried. I don't know if it was four or five, but I think that was all of them. Uh, but, you know, this was a toy. that micro- This was an official Microsoft toy. It was going to wind up in there until another part of Microsoft, remember, it's a gigantic corporation, mm-hmm. you know, said, eh, we ain't doing that. I, they don't want to deal with the lawsuits coming from that. And... Um, you know, so they were just kind of, well, what do we do with these? Well, let's just give them to some of the dev team, give them to some of the, you know, the people on Redmond that were working with them and, you know, and then just kind of got scattered around because they didn't know what else to do with them. And <laughs> I didn't realize either, but, you know, there have been a handful of pictures of these that have cropped up. And most people are like, yeah, I got it from somebody who worked on the game kind of thing and uh, didn't realize it had kind of a holy grail status. Yeah, and, you know, this was a, this was an official toy. It was official. It was from Microsoft, but it was only a test run of it. And. Somebody, you know, went to the trouble to design this thing, have it printed up. You know, these are the, this was colored. They had the Age of Empires logo on it and all that. But then to say, you know, we can't do this because, you know, there's a team there that was responsible for, you know, creating all the packaging and everything for the collector's edition. And um, the Ensemble didn't really have anything to do with that. Um, you know, that was all marketing side um, that Microsoft took care of. Um, so, yeah, I was a little surprised at uh, the interest that one particular item garnered that. People laser beamed in on it. <laughs> I mean, do you think it, it would have been successful if they released the toy range? I mean, we, we'll never know for certain. Um, um, you would have, you know, it would actually be pretty aggressive to go into the toy space because mm. you would probably, you know, you'd have to make other themed toys. Now you're probably talking, you know, children's toys, um, you know, of like the various units. And there's the whole, um, you know, at that point you're practically competing with Hasbro and right. then, you know, you have to have parents that are like, oh, that encourages war or, or this <laughs> or that. Um, I later actually worked on uh, toys for uh, the Walt Disney Corporation oh, wow. back uh, 2013 to 2016. I worked on a line of toys called the Playmation toys, which were well-received. We got to work with the uh, Marvel Avengers um, intellectual property. And um, after the first ones were released, the, um, uh, the Hulk Gamma Gear, the uh, Iron Man Repulsor Blaster and so on, and, and these different pieces could interact – um, the whole product line was canceled at the same time they canceled Disney Infinity, and the entire team was just laid off, kind of kids oh. out of the blue. And um, <laughs> but I do remember from learning there because um, we were actually working with Hasbro and other subcontractors in China. That's an entire another world. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying my experience from what I saw there to make a line of Age of Empires toys would have been a big commitment, and I don't think Microsoft was quite as experienced or ready to actually try to go into the space of toys. Um, because of the established players, it's big business worldwide, and Microsoft, you know, it, it has to actually have the idea that we want to do this. Now, will there be small little one-off toys that they sell in the stores or license? Uh, probably, and yeah, and that typically happens when other companies come to them wanting to use the license because they have an idea for the toys. Um, often, this how it how that would would come about. But um, but I don't think there was really a line of things for the toys. I think what it, I, I'm quite certain what it was is. The people who were putting together the collector's edition said, we want to do something cool. Yeah. And, you know, Age of Empires was big enough and well-loved enough back then. They're like, you know, they got the, well, okay, we'll give you the budget, why, you know, and, and, and enough to, for them to go ahead and, you know, have the toy designed and have a, an actual production run, um, you know, test run made and oh, whatnot. Good. So, so that, was, that was pretty cool. But I don't think there were, at that time, I don't think they were, were um, inside of Microsoft thinking, and we're going to spin up a toy division. 
Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, I would say that that actually wasn't going to happen, given how serious a business thing that would be. That would um, that was sort of would have had to have come from further on up. And you know, Microsoft wants to stick to what they think they do well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the areas that they feel that they belong in. And um, um, you know, I don't think they would have gone there. So no, fair enough. Well, Matt, can I ask you, actually, you, you've put these on auction now. Have you sold all of them now? Is there still stuff to go on? And uh, can um, I ask what got the biggest bid, if you don't mind me asking? Well, so they were all sold. Mm. And the auctions were all uh, done, set to go, and they, they all ended in a 15-minute time span. And um, the, the the toy trebuchet was responsible for about 50% of the entire auction winnings. <laughs> wow. It sold for over $600. Amazing. And, and in total, we raised after eBay's fees, we raised twelve hundred and twenty dollars, which was donated to um, various um, uh, uh, no-kill animal shelters and rescue mm. organizations. Um, this year, it was the uh, uh, Perfect Pals in the Greater Seattle area uh, cat rescue organization, and um, the Romanian um, uh, dog rescue organization, Howl of a Dog, this year. And both of them have received, I think, six hundred and fifteen dollar um, uh, donations from us. And, um, you know, in, in, in past years, just coming individually, our donations were typically $100, $200. I, I, I have to throw out a gigantic shout out to anybody listening, especially anybody who was involved in all of those. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I mean, that was a, a generous thing to do. Um, you know, um, I know not everybody agreed with the choice of the charities, um, but it is what it is. A lot of people do appreciate it. I mean, anybody who's ever had a pet, a cat or a dog in their life or, or whatever, I, I guess, you know. I think can certainly, um, you know, get behind that, um, you know, helping out these animals that depend on us. So um, anyway, enough of the <laughs> getting sappy about all that. Um, but, yeah, it, it surprised me. I, I thought I thought the trebuchet would be good. I thought maybe, you know, this would go for $150, $200 alone. And, um, but, boy, there were, there were a couple of people that really wanted it, really slugged it out. And, uh, um, and it blows me away that there are fans – I, mean, I shouldn't be surprised because they're, they're, as we know, they're fans of the game are, are worldwide. And, and many people have the resources to whom the money isn't a big deal to them. Mm. But having this connection to the, the game, you know, limited connection to the, you know, to the game and the original collector's edition and everything else and whatnot was, and it's just plain, you know, and they think, it's just plain cool. I want a toy trebuchet that flings balls across my desk or something. And there we go. Um, yeah, and, and so I'm really glad that you know and, and people are able to, to to do that. And there there were a number of other items, and um, and it seemed like everybody who's received them has been pretty darn happy with them. Well, no, Matt, credit it's due because you could have just sat on those products. You could have kept them in your, I don't know, your basement, whatever. But you, it's gone for well, for me, opinion, at least, sounds like great charities and respect where it's due. And uh, I mean, you you basically destroyed Facebook, didn't you? Do I saw some some of the threads you put on, and it was like, wow, my Facebook, boom, 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 we can't cope. So <laughs> credit credit to the um, Facebook. It's called the Age of Empires. It Wallow Wallow Posting Group. They're a nice bunch, aren't they? Uh, they really are. And, and I have to say this about interaction with so many of the people, yourself and everybody else. Um, to this day, I'm still humbled when I meet fans mm-hmm. of it because, and as I, I tell everybody, it's because of people and their fandom and everything that I, you know, and other people at Ensemble Studios and Forgotten Empires and even Hidden Path, you know, that and whatnot, every, you know, everywhere that's, that's been involved with the series, um, they've gotten to do what they've gotten to do. It's mm-hmm. been because of the fans, the players, um, you know, that have gone out and purchased the game and supported the game and given the feedback and, and, and made it stand out in what's now, you know, uh, in, you know, 
there's so many games out there today, and there's so many good games even, you know, to have something that has that kind of um, um, cachet and standout like Age of Empires is it's truly remarkable. And um, I remind myself to try to be very humble about it, you know, that, yes, we worked hard. Yes, we created our own luck, but there is, you know, a portion of luck and there needs to be a portion of grace. Um, I, I've lost track of how many times somebody has told me about, you know, something like, you know, this inspired me to actually, you know, crack down and, 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 and pay attention to my, my history studies or, or somebody telling stories. Of, I used to play this with my dad, you know, mm-hmm. and he played it up until he passed away or something like that. You know, you got a tear in your eye and, you know, and you're like, wow, what do you say to you had an impact on somebody's life and you didn't even know it in in the best you can do is be be humble and thankful and remind yourself, you know, uh, not to get cocky about it. And um, yeah, um, because it's it's the other people that have allowed you allowed me to, you know, do this and, you know, to do these things interestingly and to, and to, to work on a product that I loved and, and, and so on that um, it's, it's really them. And, you know, and honestly, not even not to um, diss them or anything like that, but, but it's not even Microsoft because if the game went out and, you know, didn't really sell and nobody cared and we've kind of forgotten because, you know, their move on. It was, it was you know, it was, again, it was the, the, the end mm-hmm. users and the players that made it what it is in, in, in the community that's formed and the interest. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of games, but very, very few games um, have managed to do what the Age of Empires series has done um, in people's hearts, mind, and, and um, um, you know, and, and credit to all the rest of the teams, the great mm-hmm. guys that I've worked with and, and, and so on, you know, has to be spread around. Um, I don't think there's any one person for whom all the success should be deemed to or anything like that. Yep. Um, again, just, just got to be, gotta be humble and, and just glad that I was allowed to, to play my part and that it was rewarding to do so. Well, it's often regarded by many as one of the most important games of all time. Uh, such an important series, not just in the RTS genre, but in gaming in general. So, it's amazing, really. Um, Matt, if it's cool, I've got a few questions I took from that Facebook group. I, put, I said we're going to ask a few questions here. A lot of sort of quick-fire questions. Some, some are a little bit silly, but if, you, if you're up for it, um, I've got some wallow, wallow, posting questions. Is that all right? Okay, let's go for it. Right, so um, the first question is, what's your favorite unit in any of the Age of Empire universe? Well, I have to admit, to I played an overpowering unit way too often in Age 1. Mm-hmm. And that would have been the Hittites with their upgraded, um, uh, their all the way upgraded um, uh, um, mounted archers. I'm trying to think of them, the cavalry archers. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, those guys um, had some bonuses that I, I frequently abused way too much. Um, probably um, one of the coolest units from age two, you know, is Petard, you know, going and, uh, you know, having the. Uh, Having a swarm of them descend upon uh, an enemy's city and blowing everything up in sight, um, you know, maybe that's just the, uh, the little boy and me blowing things up that you know with glee um, with those. Um, in my heart, it's kind of ignored a lot, um, but probably in, in one category that would be the stormy dog unit, the cheat unit, only because um, I've only had owned one dog in my entire life, yep. and he was a rescue, and I personally rescued him. Um, he and his siblings had been uh, dumped by a puppy mill down into the sewers, and it took me three nights um, and days to get him out of there. And then wow. um, this happened um, about January 15th, 1997, just as we were starting up the crunch on Age of Empires 1. And he was my good companion through the very rough years I had in the 2000 and through my divorce and everything else. And, um, you know, so kind of like a boy and his dog. So I, 
I was happy I was able to just sneak in a little memorial tribute to him in age two. I know the there wasn't any time to really give him some any power to do anything like some of the other units or anything cool. Um, so it was kind of like a little private little thing um, mm. uh, for that. So there's the practical units from H1 and H2, and then you know there's kind of the moral unit, which which isn't really a fair question because there's you know yeah. this very personal backstory to it. So. <laughs> oh, man, I appreciate the honesty. Um, how about I, I must pronounce this right because I'm, I'm it's probably shouting people shouting at me right now. What inspired the priest saying is it Wallalolo Wallalolo? I just <laughs> well I um that came. From I believe Chris Rippy, so yep. the Rippy brothers, you know, um, working on H1. Uh, Dave Rippy, uh, they were all musicians. They'd grown up as a musical family um, kind of thing. But Dave Rippy would work with uh, Tony at Ensemble Corporation, and um, he did a lot of producer roles um, items and was involved with that. Although also they all played instruments at the release party too at the band. But um, the uh, Chris Rippy handled most of the sound effect, the voice. You know, he that's his voice saying Rogan, and I, and I know it's out there on the web, like you know the story where some of those things came from. Where Stephen actually composed the soundtrack and the music for that. Oh, cool. Um, for these, you know, and, and these guys, um, um, you know, very brilliant with that. So the actual Wolo, I would have to ask him. Uh, but we had that sound pretty early on, I think, because it came up with a pretty good sound. You know, we had to have. The, you know, a language that was sort of language neutral. You know, we didn't have the, mm. you know, the, the localized language, uh, you know, of voice effects, um, you know, uh, voice recording until the um, uh, age two, where we had the bigger budget and can hire proper voice actors. Although I know we got criticized for some of them. Uh, your Scotsman does not sound like a Scotsman at all. And I know Scotsman and, you know, a lot of those um, uh, with that. But I, 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 I truly don't know the full story for that. I do know that we um, had that on there and, um, um, and, uh, um, you know, I fear that some of these I won't necessarily know. Oh, um, I fair enough. Uh, but I can give it a try, uh, because a lot of these things were individual contributions from individual people. Mm. Um, best way to say a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of like, uh, unique unit or, or, you know, like cheat units and things like that. And, um, individual people came up with them and, uh, Not fair enough. insert them in. Okay. So next question is. What's the story behind how do you turn this on? Um, what did that do? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I don't, I don't remember. But I might. you might jog my memory. Um, I'm not totally sure, actually, Matt. I've just got it from the questions. But I think – Oh, I, that would have been the Cobra car. Ah. And that was from lead artist Scott Winsett. And I think that was a unit he had – he created the artwork for. So one of the things you'll find is that the cheat codes in the first game, especially, um, most of them came from the artists because they had the spare time to actually create the visual assets to go with ah. them, uh, for the, you know, for the, uh, the programmers. Um, you know, you don't want to see programmer art in the games. Just trust me on that. And, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and they were able to create that. But that um, Scott Winsett uh, was something kind of a good old boy, and he had a couple of racing cars. Cars that you know he towed on his truck out, and um, you know, not quite NASCAR or whatever, but um, that very much was a muscle car kind of thing that I think he wanted, and so you know he got to insert that in the game. So that came from him. That came from his passion of of having cars and racing, and um, um, you know, and uh, then you know, if if I remember right, then of course you know once you're in the uh, the Age of Empires unit database, we're like, hmm, okay, we can add it. Shoots a projectile. Projectile does you know a totally unfair amount of damage. Has an incredible range. Um, and oh, we can set the speed up here so fast that it, it practically breaks the moving so it lo- moving uh, system. So it looks like it's uh, it turns really strangely or something like that. You know, it um, 
um, all the parameters uh, in terms of creating it. A lot of it, the game was really data driven. So, um, mm. uh, you know, again, a lot of it was was impinged on the assets. So um, they're able to create a lot of things without needing a lot of programmer intervention. But uh, um, at least you know who's responsible for that, and maybe <laughs> he could be interviewed for like you know. Uh, yeah, what, were you, what were you thinking or what were you drinking when you came up with that? <laughs> this might be a similar answer because uh, it, it sounds, it's again, quite wacky. But how about Furious, the monkey boy? Any any stories behind that? Um, I believe so. They, um, that was, um, I think, the little gorilla unit um, mm. from Duncan McKissick, uh, one of the artists. He's a very good guy. He had actually done recent at Origin uh, Systems down in Austin before coming up uh, Ensemble. He's around there from the beginning. And that was, I think, the um, part of the. I want to say his son, and if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Duncan. I don't mean don't mean to just hear anything, but I could swear he, their son was named Furious Wode McKissick, <laughs> and um, and that was a reference to his baby boy. And I imagine his baby boy at that point was kind of you know getting to be a little terror or something. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and oh, I love so, it. And, and so that is probably, if it is not accurate, that is probably um, pretty. Uh, close uh, to it. Yeah. Oh, I love the little stories. Um, how about this? It's probably a yes or no answer, really. I don't think you even know the answer, Matt, but does the blood on Lahira's sword ever go dry? <laughs> I do not think so. <laughs> I, do, I do not think so, but as I'd have to look, literally the proper answer to that might um, uh, require, you know, like looking. I don't, I think that's part of the, the legend behind it, but. Um, I, that would actually require looking in the code to see if there's like any recharge time or anything like that. Um, looking at the code and the data to see how is this actually configured to see if there's something in the game that mm. uh, would represent that. Um, but I'm going to go with a no. Oh, brilliant. I think you've already answered the next question, Matt, but I, I, it's just asking um, what do you think? Uh, were you surprised by how some methods that pro players are using in the game today to defeat levels, defeat opponents? I think you kind of would answer that, but are you still shocked by some of the new strategies people use? I am amazed that it still continues to evolve. As I said earlier, you know, we found out that, you know, once it was released to players, they were using it in ways and seeing things and, some, and sometimes just playing on a sheer level, mm. you know, far beyond what most of us could see which was also, you know, the baseline we used when we're creating it and playtesting and trying to come up with balanced. You know, we're balancing it for our okay level of skill. And then, you know, um, the elite... And the interesting thing also that we didn't know at the time in the late 90s um, was the prevalence of streaming and recording games. So we added record games to H2, part of his feedback, you know, and how they would be put out and studied. That you would have, you know, a championship elite player who could, you know, win in a tournament and his games out there for everybody to study and analyze and go on, you know, the, um, so yes, we were very, very surprised. And also, you know, again, pointing out the timetable of the games where, um, we didn't anticipate, you know, the culture that kind of has come out of, um, not just age of empires, but sort of all games to which, you know, you can stream it and, you know, and carefully analyze what exactly happened. So, yeah. Oh, good stuff. Um, Someone asked here about the voice acting. How was it done? Uh, he doesn't ask, or she doesn't ask specifically what game it is, but, who, what was the inspiration for such lines such as uh, who was behind Eleven, for example? Oh, gosh. That, so, again, going back to uh, Chris Rippey and company. So, mm. the um, taunts and the wave files that we could play. I'm trying to remember when we came up with that. But I remember it was a big deal uh, because we'd be playing in the office, you know, and we could hear each other's speakers in the background. And we'd be spamming each other with <laughs> the various, you know, with the various stuff as we're waiting in the lobby to start. And um, um, I want to say... 
Um, it was Chris Rippey. Um, maybe Mark Toronto helped out with that. Um, but, you know, the idea that, you know, hey, we should have a bunch of pre-recorded audio clips mm. and, um, you know, you can just put the number for them in chat, you know, for a um, shorthand. And um, that um, uh, uh, and, and so, um, again, it would have it probably fallen on Chris as far as actually making the recordings, mm. any recorded voices, sound effects, you know, um, weapons clinking against each other and so on. That was his domain. Um I say that, you know, because one, you know, his older brother, Dave, was really, um, he was, you know, he was tied, he may have helped out, Dave may have helped out, but he was really tied down with a lot of production duties and management duties. And his younger brother, Stephen, not only was he working the soundtrack, he was still finishing up his degree at the University of Texas in Austin at the time on mm-hmm. age one. So, um, you know, he had the whole, yeah, I got to graduate. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, busy full time, but I'm going to write an entire soundtrack uh, while I'm at it, too, here. And uh, yeah, so yeah, very incredible. He's he's a great guy. He still continues to do soundtracks to stay, I believe. Um, but you know, um, in terms of who had the time and was positioned to do that, um, again, put that down on Chris Rippey uh, for coming up with that. And um, given the resources available, he was he was a very resourceful um, audio engineer on that. Um, and you know, I couldn't be happier with his, his results. So. Brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say thank you again to the Facebook group. They are brilliant. I, I said I was going to interview you. They, they responded in drives, as you can imagine. So credit where it's due. So it's the uh, Wallo Lolo posting or the Wallo po- uh, Facebook group. So please join. It's, it's a good place to be. Um, Matt, I've got to ask, actually, did you ever start any work on any games, uh, Age of Empires or anything like that you, you, you started work on but was never released? Well, like most people who have been in the game industry for a long time, it, it, releasing games is more the exception than the starting the games. Not <laughs> so. Um, I will. Um, so at Ensemble Studios, after we shipped Age One for a brief little while, I think I still have a few documents related to it somewhere buried. Um, uh, Tim Dean and I, um, for a while, worked on a game using the same engine, the Genie Engine, that was going to be a fantasy spellcasting game, sort of real time, kind of not quite like Diablo. Diablo hadn't quite hit yet. I think uh, it was called Sorcerer internally. Um, you know, and we started down that path, you know, um, you know, creating, you know, dungeon-like environments and uh, being able to move. And I was working on seeing if we could do 16-bit graphics instead of 8-bit graphics. Um, but that didn't go very far. And, you know, we we're back on Age 1 expansion pack and Age 2. Um, but that had always been. Is the uh, I told you there was a second team after Microsoft um, had acquired the studio, you know, working on... Um, uh, working on Xbox games, and we mm. did all sorts of simple little prototypes. We had a, I remember a, you know, a, a a game involving pirates, you know, sailing their ships to islands and looking for loot on little deserted islands and stuff. Uh, we were, you know, briefly looking at like, you know, a Mars ba- build a Mars base game. We were so many things were started down ideas. You know, we're looking to see, um, you know, you know, trying to explore where some creativity might, um, you know, um, meet some, you know, some designs that we thought were solid and that we could pursue for green light. And that was just an ensemble. It pretty much um, um, every company I've been at, um, there have been some. Um, in fact, there's actually um, a bit of a thing that has to do with the um, definitive editions. Um, you know, I worked on the um, um, Age of Kings HD edition that came out, and um, I had to leave the company at the end. Um, a bit of a long story there, but um, moved on from Hidden Path, and, and they're great guys over at Hidden Path. Um, uh, when it was released, which unfortunately, you know, the, the game then went on over um, to Skybox. Um, that's why I had to stay there. But um, I got hooked up with the guys, the Forgotten Empires guys, mm-hmm. um, early on. This was 2013, 2014-ish. And we actually 
were working on our own retro RTS when Microsoft came calling in 2016 saying, hey, we got this idea of remastering the first game and doing Age of Empires 1 Definitive Edition. Yeah. And so actually some of the graphics technology and whatnot that we had been developing ourselves, um, we are choosing some very, you know, we were working on some very particular things because we, we wanted a certain sort of feel to do a modern game, but to have a retro feel to it. But if you actually have played the original Age 1 in all of its 256 color glory, you realize <laughs> it's a little bit lacking 25 years later. Um <laughs> But um, so we actually took, uh, you know, some of the technical um, visual advancements and some of the other things, and they were, you know, they were seen in H1 Definitive Edition, H2 Definitive Edition. Again, the uh, the graphics engines are my design, although I know some other people have you know, since moved on from all that. Um, H2 Definitive Editions being um, the, the engineering is no longer done by Forgotten Empires, and I know they've done something. But you know, if you look at the visual design, H1 and H2, and you know, the the, the glorious looking buildings and everything else, you know, again, I'm responsible for that. That that came out of the, the, the genesis of that was stuff that Forgotten Empires, um, because we had actually, we well, actually back up, we had actually contacted Microsoft and say, hey, you have any interest in redoing H1? And they're like, nope. And um, <laughs> we're like, well, you know what? Why don't we work on our own and maybe shop it around? And we were starting to make some progress, uh, some decent progress on that. And actually, when Microsoft came calling, um, uh, the guys, some of the guys flew over. They were they were not in the United States at the time. They flew over from Europe. We got everybody together. We went into Microsoft and uh, uh, we gave them a heck of a PowerPoint presentation. We showed them, here's all the visual upgrades we can do. Here's this tech we've been working on. This is what it would make it look like. And um, showed them, you know, this is our vision. Like, you know, we can, we can make this thing look modern, yet at the same time, you know, exact feel. You know, there's sometimes you see a remaster where, it's, where you don't feel the connection to the original. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and you know, and, and so we were, and because of our love of age and all that, and and my interest in the graphics technology, you know, we were very, you know, it's why we're still kind of sprite based, why, but we we're doing things with it that, um, you know, kind of that other people weren't doing, so that it would have its own sort of, you know, really unique look to it. Um, and I think, you know, the, you know, H1 Definitive Edition, it it is a little weaker than what's been come to expect in some ways because it never was, you know, a modern era RTS. It really is the it's the original code base still underneath it, but. You know, you got to admit that, boy, if you saw those visuals in 1997, you know, you'd probably faint. They're just, you know, <laughs> I mean, but it, it's still that game. It, it, this is time one, it has one foot firmly in the past, but one foot very firmly in the present. And um, we're kind of proud of that. Oh, nice one. No, Matt. Uh, credit, but anyway, credit, yeah. that, anyway, sorry about that. But I was saying, yeah, we had we were working on an RTS game. Um, we're since not doing it at this time. There doesn't seem to be enough interest out there. Um, you know, if, if some publisher is listening to this and, you know, feels like you have a hole in your RTS lineup, uh, you know, contact the Forgotten Empires and we'll talk to you. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I, I love the RTS genre. I think it needs a prop. I mean, there is still games out there, but I think, it, oh, I think there's still room for more personally. Definitely. Um, speaking of future RTS games, Age of Empires 4 has been announced. It's going to be released. I, I can't remember exactly when. You may know better than me, Matt. But what, what are your views on this? And Are you involved in this project at all? Or what are your well, opinions about no, it? No. And all of Forgotten Empires was not involved. Um, mm. It's kind of funny. But unfortunately, the, the way things tend to work, especially with Microsoft, is um, they're really sort of secretive. Uh, we knew about Age of Empires 4 um, and Forgotten Empires because of the, the leaks about it before um, Microsoft, who we're working with, is willing to tell us that before they felt they, they could even admit that it existed. And we're like, we know you're working on H4. You know, we're hearing all, you know, the, you know, the rumor mills going, no, 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 no. And, uh, uh, you know, and they just couldn't do that because of the, it's their big company. It's the way they operate um, with all that. But, yep. no, we don't, you know, Relic's doing that. Um, and I believe it's Relic, right? It's doing Age of Empires 4. I believe so, yeah. 
yeah, and it, and it's their own thing. Um, the thing to realize is, you know, like again, for Forgotten Empires and whatnot, we don't own the Age of Empires IP. That's Microsoft's baby. So Microsoft, a very big company, you know, has to think about what they're doing with it, and they have to think about it in context of their future plans for Windows, their future plans for Xbox, you know, their future plan for their game division, and so on. You know, that's one of the things that led to the decision that you know, Age of Empires One uh, Definitive Edition was originally released as a UWP on the Microsoft Store only for a while. Um, it took them. It took the guys um, on the team there a while to sort of convince them we need to release this on Steam also too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, but it's it's a way of saying that hey, it's a really big company. Um, they own that. They own it. They've got plans for it and visions of people working on it and all that. And um, those of us who were originally involved with her, those of us involved with the remasters, you know, really didn't have any part of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we know that there's four going on. Um, what I've seen so far, um, I'm kind of holding judgment on it. I mean, there's definitely – I'll put it this way. The Relic guys have a lot of pressure on them when you're coming into a franchise yep. and all of its players and all of its expectations. Um, I saw some beautiful stuff in there. I saw some stuff that was different. You know, um, it's one of those – I think I need to wait and see and actually you know, play the game or a demo or something yep. like that before I can really assess. Because it's possible to make an RTS game. That is looked in a medieval setting or the settings they have, but it not feel like an Age of Empires game. You know, the, what is this Nebulous feels like an Age of Empires game out of all the games that are, you know, RTS games that are out there. Um, mm. It's kind of hard to define, you know, and, and it's one of those, I, I, rather than try to cast judgment based on some short video clips or, or in some still shots, you know, want to see what the final product can do, what the team can do, you know, kind of, you know, and I'll, I'll you know, have my own personal opinions of whether it's a, um, you know, like, oh, man, this is truly, you know, the spiritual successor, you know, as well as, you know, mm. um, you know, the te- you know, the next logical successor in the IP, you know, they'll like it, you know, you know, and it'll be like, you know, does this capture more of the feel of like age three or age two or age one or age myth or is its own beast? You know, you got to kind of find out when you uh, when you play it. I mean, and again, that's that's kind of from the point of of, um, you know, a player that, you know, finesses with opinion, like you have some people who, you know, of all the, you know, all the first person shooters out there, you know, and people, some people are, are, you know, they're like, they're like wine snobs, you know, (laughs) you know, this vintage, this vintage shooter should have been good except for, you know, just the flavor of the enemies just isn't, you know, or the the, the, Mm. the weapons just don't have enough sound, you know, enough meat to the sound and, you know, debating esoteric points. Um, I try not to be like that. Um, I mean, I wish the guys in the team, all the best success with it. Good on you. It's it, it, like I said, it's not easy. It, it helps and it hurts to work within an existing intellectual property. Yeah. Um, and you know, it creates some challenges. So, but to, th- to, to you know, I got to think that there's a lot of inspired, uh, dedicated people there, and some got to be some people there that, that you know really do get it. And this, I, I said much earlier, comes down to execution. Um, I want to see the final product. Uh, one thing I've learned not to do is to pass judgments on like you know a beta or an alpha. Yeah. Um, uh, prematurely, and um, you know, because um, because that's really unfair to the to to the team and everybody and everybody involved with it. Love it, Matt. Look, we've just a couple of last minute questions. Really appreciate the time. I mean, we've we've had on Arcade Attack Ed Freeze, Bruce Shelley. We've had Dave Pottinger on a text interview. I mean, we we spoke to some real legends, and you've worked with huge people. You've made a huge impact in the gaming industry. How do you reflect back on that particular team, that time of your life, and um, I mean, how do you reflect back on your career? Well, I'll be honest. Um, there was – I was fortunate. Mm-hmm. I was in the right place at the right time, and I brought the right skills to the table. To Age of Empires 1, I got to – and Age of Empires 2, to be honest, I got to be 
a big part of it. Um, I'll give you an example by comparison. Um, um, you know, I, I, w- I, I got to work at Valve for a few years. It was a, it was a really great time there. Um, and I got to work on some of their titles. But my contributions to their titles is just a tiny fraction of a percent of the overall thing. Mm-hmm. With Age of, Empires, Age of Empires 1 and 2 especially, I got to create a substantial part of the foundation of it. And that is something that most people don't get to do. Remember the whole thing about the whole no middleware and all that? And, yep. you know, I can point to, you know, a double digit percentage of the code and whatnot that I created. I can point to whole systems that were my design, file formats and things like that. And, um, you know, so I felt, you know, all of us there were at a time and sort of a magical place in time, a, a gathering, um, you know, sort of the early era of the modern Windows gaming and, um, you know, we're able to make outsized contributions to the final product relative to what most people get to do nowadays for what is, you know, a triple A title. And, yeah. um, you know, the size of triple A titles were smaller. You know, we didn't have to worry about, you know, achievements and cloud saves and, you know, some of the stuff you expect to be standard today, too. So the scope was a little more restrained in, too. And um, um, so so I I look back at that fortune. I also think that there was some uh, kind of magic to the team formation um at that time this was sort of before a lot before getting into the game industry was as popular as it was so and we went through a number of people not everybody that applied at ensemble got hired and um and again remember i comment about the uh, um you know giving a, a panel discussion on our hiring practices um but the people that we we brought on board were all very passionate um you know capable and they were all kind of we had to kind of invent a lot of it as we went on you know, I got to, uh, you know, to write about techniques that I, um, uh, you know, that I came up with and see them, you know, published. And I've actually seen them uh, later on. You know, I've seen like, um, oh, an academic paper come out and find my name referred to in it, you know, as a source material guy who did this and that. And, um, you know, flattering, um, although we were just trying to, you know, do our, do what we had to do then. Um, and um, so, so I both fortunate, but at the same time. Um, I got to acknowledge, you know, I'd had that passion going back, as I talked about, you know, to the late 70s, and the 80s. You know, I always had that passion burning. I got to work with other people who had that passion burning. Um, yeah. So it was a combination of both the effort, you know, um, really good effort put forth, the people, um, but but also, you know, the, the kind of the holistically the whole thing. It wasn't just that we had great technical people or great artists, you know. Also, you know, the management of the studio did a fantastic job of aligning everybody's interest on the product. You come into some big companies, you have to worry about corporate politics, for example. You know, there, we didn't really have that. We were small, lean, um, you know, and very hyper-focused on what we were creating. And um, that's a hard experience to, to reproduce. And also, because we were at that dawn of the RTS genre, that, you know, 50 games coming out next year yep. kind of thing, the rules weren't really even figured out. We actually got to write some of the rules for the RTS genre. You'll remember. Um, you'll remember. I made the comment about you know uh, dropping into the game the feature of sharing line of sight between people in multi- yes. multiplayer. That was actually ours. Was the first game that did that. Um, I'm still I'm still really annoyed at the writer uh, for one of the gaming magazines that said said Blizzard did that first. <laughs> um, did not like age, but uh, you know it's kind of a you know you know we got you know in the process of creating something we didn't realize we we're kind of creating some of the standards for the genres. Um, you know, in many ways from the design, unit interaction, um, you know, things uh, and so on. Um, so being at, you know, being at that early time, it'd be like, um, well, I'll give, I'll give you a great example. Um, 
uh, fellow I worked with who came on board at the end of the H1, um, our network programmer on H2, a guy by the name of Paul Bettner. Um, people might know him. Um, he went on and created a company called New Toy, and um, they had a little iPhone app most people haven't heard of called Words with Friends. Mm. That's huge. <laughs> uh, yes, but, but he got started there. He had the vision for that back in 2008. You know, oh, wow. and, and started out with his brother um, on the infrastructure. They actually had a, a chess with friends first and words with friends. Um, you know, again, part of being in the right time. If he had tried to do that a decade later, probably wouldn't have been the big deal. You know, so there's oh, a combination okay. of both having the vision, you know, and again, credit the original guys from, you know, from Bruce and Tony and, and Rick and Brian and, and everybody, you know, to make a studio, to make a game, to, um, you know, to being at the right place at the right time. But you don't know you're at the right place at the right yeah. time when yeah, you're there. Yeah, yeah. You only get to go back in hindsight and say, oh, wow, the whole industry was changing and it was taking off. And um, so you're fortunate to be there, but it's also because you worked your tail off. Mm. You competed. You were inspired by all the competition to do even better. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of when all those things, when, when, when all that converges, then you, you know, then you have a chance uh, often at coming up with something, you know, that, that, that really, you know, lasts unusually long or as well received as, as, as age was. So, um, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but, frankly, but, I, but I'm very aware that there was a special time and I consider myself very fortunate. I was able to, um, try and make the very best of it. Oh, well, that's a brilliant answer. Matt, I've got two final questions, and I'll, I'll pinch myself if I don't get a chance to ask you this. And it's not on my in, my question list, so I apologise. But and I, you probably don't know the answer, or you may just be it might be a guess your end. But do you think because you obviously worked at Valve, and I could ask loads of questions about that. Huge, huge fan of their games. Do you think we're ever going to see Half Life Three? I was about to answer. I know nothing about the number three. Nothing about the number three. <laughs> um, the the guys at Valve have an interesting challenge they um it, it is known you know they've looked at um you know continuing half-life and but they also recognize the bar that they've set and then also you know getting the the way valves processes are very interesting internally to build the internal consensus that this is worth pursuing um in organically and in that i'll say this about their process it's part of the strength of the company it's why their games that they, they release mm. do come out so good um, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to seeing Half-Life Alex. Yes. My son is really looking forward to playing it. And I'm curious if that, you know, it's the time to come down and revisit it. Maybe it's the shift, the format to it that, that, that you know, may bring it about, um, you know, to people seeing a true Half-Life 3 or not. I can't really speculate on it, and I absolutely cannot disclose anything that I might know from friends that are still there, mm -hmm. um, as I'm on very good terms with them. And... Um, and uh, people that are still there, I still visit with them. Their 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 offices are literally. Um, I'm looking out the window right now. I think they're about four or five miles straight in the direction <laughs> I'm looking at. Um, and um, you know, it's going to be up to them. It's 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 a it's a compl it's a complicated thing, um, but um, we might. It's mm. a fair thing to say. I would. You can't you can't say no. Mm. But if they're going to do it, if they're going to create such a thing. They're going to make it worth our while. Oh yes, I can guarantee you that. And and um, you know you know they're they're in a position where they're not in a position where well we have to get something out by Christmas or else or anything like that. They're not you know they're they're very well aware. Um, you know we got a lot to answer for if we go down this road. I think again I said Half Life Alex. I think will kind of uh, help set the tone. And if mm -hmm. it is um, 
you know, and if it is all the things I'm hearing about it on here, um, you know, maybe it's time for it to come around and maybe it's not even a three, but maybe it's yet another exploration in the Half-Life universe. I know people have been wondering, like, you know, are the portal and Half-Life universes connected and stuff? And yeah. uh, um, it's really hard to say, but I can say this. The guys there, incredibly great crew over there. And if, it, if internally, if they figure out something and it catches fire over there, you know, they will do it. There's nothing There's nothing going to be stopping them. And um, I've seen things over there where, you know, it's things sort of catch fire internally. And usually it winds up to great things. And um, it's one of the beautiful things about Valve is, you know, you probably heard they have a pretty flat management structure. Yeah. Um, they allow a lot of things to come from people. In some companies, design and everything is very top down. But, but anybody there might be the one who sees something of great importance. Um, um, I'll give you an example. Um, Adrian Fennell was responsible for, um, at least as I, because I interacted with him, right, that was starting, um, Dota 2. Yeah. Um, he was cre- You know, he was working on the very first prototype. He was so passionate about it. And in Valve, he had the freedom and the track. You know, and and the respect of his peers to go off and get started working on the prototype. I got worked um, pulled in on it. I actually worked a, a, a little bit on it um, to help give it some more RTS style pathing and movement. Um, using, I'm going on my experience with Age of Empires. Mm. Um, you know, because we needed to be. You know, because because Dota was you know based off of an RTS platform, and. Um, you know, th- it didn't come from top down. There wasn't a product planning meeting saying, what do we need to, uh, you know, fill out the space in our product plan um, next year? None of that. You know, the fire came up internally and I saw, you know, it caught fire. And now it's, you know, it's become the esports juggernaut that it, that it is. And Valve walks a tightrope um, and they do it pretty well, you know, to um, when it happens, you know, to, 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 to let the stuff go to explore explore these things coming up from all directions and see if they're worthwhile. It's why they do things like, you know, hey, you know, we have there's this mod team out there creating this nebacular drop and Gabe and everybody are like, you know, let's bring them on board and see what they can do. And then next thing you know, the world's got portal. And um, that uh, um, so I, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm I'm hopeful having mm. having seen from the inside how they work. Um, I'm hopeful. And, but I know that, you know, I know that they will pursue it all the way through if they can figure out how to really deliver um, yeah. in a way that's that's going to be for people, you're not going to what you're not going to get is a cheap cash in, yeah, or, keep, or cash grab or something like that. They just have no interest and no reason to do so. Um, sorry for the long-winded answer about no, that. No, no, no. I really appreciate. Um, it. And I'm a huge Half-Life fan, and um, you know, I, lo- I love getting the insight as well. I know this has been a very Age of Empire heavy interview, but obviously Valve, another huge company you work for, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy, isn't it, Matt? Fair play to you. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. I have to say it was, it was, you know, that and ensemble have been my two greatest, um, employer experiences. Um, I learned a ton while I was at valve, um, you know, and I've, I've got nothing but respect for those guys. Um, and, um, you know, and then, and, 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 and that's beside the fact that, you know, I still occasionally keep bumping into people from there, so it's a, you know, but, but in all seriousness, um, you know, that they, they, they occupy a pretty unique niche out there in the industry. And, um, you know, um, and and they want to do great things. So, because I mean, look at look at how they have brought you know how they have furthered pushing VR out into mainstream gaming, just um, yeah, you know, th- through the hardware and everything else. So, got to give them credit. No. Well, Matt, look, brilliant interview. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Got one sort of silly final question to wrap things up, uh, but I really do appreciate the time today. Such like, really really great answers, and I really appreciate the time. Um, if you could share a few drinks of any video game character, who would you choose and why? So we're going to end the interview. 
Oh my. <laughs> okay, now that one, that one, that one uh, threw me for a loop. Now, the um, you know characters, it's kind of unfair because you know it start out like you know who have been influential characters. You know, if I I'd share a drink with the Doom guy, but mm-hmm. I don't know that he'd have much to say. But Grunt, um, <laughs> I'd share a drink with the Vault Dweller from Fallout, but I you know. I'm, you know, not sure what their character stats would be, how, you know, how, you know, I don't want them to get, you know, you know, alcohol addiction or poisoning <laughs> um, <laughs> with that, um, you know, um, you know, I'm kind of a more fanciful sort of thing, you know, uh, said, so what would the characters have to tell me, you know, would, would Mario or Sonic have great stories to, uh, uh, you know, you know, to tell me, um, I can actually, you know, I'll, I'll put it sort of this way is that as I played games and I played various games over the years, um, you wind up wondering um, about the stories in, in sometimes uh, in unexpected ways. Or, uh, um, I'm going to share with you. So a game I played just recently in the last week, um, Far, Lone Sales. Right, and okay. It was a very different sort of experience. And, and th- there's a character in there. I don't know the character's name. I don't even know if it's a, a young boy or a young girl because their, their, their head is covered and, uh, and things like that. And it's like, you know, kind of like, um, you know, gosh, I'd... I, it's, it's rather than the character, I'd like to sit down with the designer and say, where did you come up with this? I've had a chance to to meet and, um, you know, talk with various designers uh, over the years and ask them about, you know, how they got inspired from early on, like getting a chance to talk with uh, Richard Garriott, you know, about uh, the mm-hmm. creation of the Ultima series or people like um, Warren Spector. Or, um, you know, I talk about, you know, my love of the Fallout games. Um, you know, I actually tried to get a um, um, Fallout designer, Chris Avalon. To uh, interview at Ensemble Studios nice. back in the early 2000s, you know, and um, still occasionally uh, bump into him today. And um, um, I guess it would be sort of like any of the people. There, you know, there's we're an amazing t- in an amazing time for game content in, in new games out there. And occasionally you find gems. And I'm you know referring to Fire Loan Sales here most recently. And I'm like, wow, how did this game come about? Like um, this was a it was a it was more of an experience than a game, but yet it was still like. I'm still amazed after all these years, people are coming up with very, very creative things, sometimes, you know, totally unexpected. And um, there's so many people I'd love to ask, uh, you know, the guy responsible for a Kerbal Space Program, which is another game my, my son absolutely loves and has invested way too many hours. And <laughs> I'm like, you know, and, and, um, and my son and I have, um, you know, we got a pack next time we can figure out when there's going to be a Falcon Heavy launch, we're going to go to Florida, hopefully, to watch it and stuff like that, you know, and um, part of that, I think, you know, it's Kerbal Space Program, and they're like, I, I would want to ask the original designer, you're like, what gave you the inspiration? Um, yeah, good So question. maybe not so much the characters, but but I find myself, you know, the characters in the universe we kind of know about, but I, but the people who made them yeah. came up with some of these these experiences. I, I have to admit, I'm as much a fanboy as anybody else uh, of so many things, you know, and I want to, I'd love to hear how things, you know, how things came about, um, and, and so on, because yeah. I, I consider I consider myself kind of a hack, really. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, it, and I know it's the the imposter syndrome thing going on. I look at other people and I'm like, how did you get inspired to this, or how did you get inspired to that? And I have been fortunate that I've gotten to meet a lot of my heroes um, over the years. You know, yep. I've gotten to hang out with John Romero and John Carmack before, and and things like you know from from early on and. Um, you know, people who've been responsible for uh, influ- influential games and so, you know, here and there from being inside the industry. And, 
not because I'm anybody special, but just because I'm so old and I've been around enough that I keep bumping into people. Um, you know, so I, I guess that's the best kind of answer um, that I can do. And then the other thing is, as you get older, you uh, can't quite drink as much as you used to when you were a young lad. So, <laughs> couple a couple of chilled beers, yeah. Look, Matt, you're a real legend in my eyes, very humble, and I really appreciate your answers today. So, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, and again, I'm just humbled that anybody's still interested in this after all these years. Um, I think I can add one, you know, one little tidbit that yeah. um, I don't think, and I, and I think this was from questions we discussed before, I, um, I don't think anybody on the team originally expected it to turn into what it was mm. or that it would even be the sales success that it was. And I can share a little story on the way out the, the finishes this up um, um, in that uh, we were originally hoping to sell, we needed to sell, I think, 300 to 330,000 copies of Age of Empires 1 to um, break even. Um, when I told you in the last couple of months, we knew we were onto something kind of special. And um, I remember we were down, we were out to lunch with a couple of people from Microsoft. Stuart Mulder uh, from Microsoft was down with us. Tim Zananacek was also down. And uh, we were all out to lunch talking about our hopes for that. And Stuart said, I'm going out on a limb here. And he predicted we were going to sell 535,000 copies. Mm. Now he was off by about a factor of 10. <laughs> um, you know, did not we did it is a way of saying you know even our our best guesses with people at Microsoft and you know with access to marketing data and marketing plans, we didn't know this was going to blow up this big. Yeah. Um, and so to some extent, how can you not be just kind of like I said, you know, humbled, grateful, fortunate, um, you know, to have been part of something that turned out to be so special. That's a brilliant way to finish the interview, Matt. I mean, you involved one of the most important games of all time, and well. I think the, the, those numbers thank talk you. for themselves. So thank I'm, you so much. I, thank you for having me on. And uh, um, I'll still be found around from time to time there in the uh, the Facebook group. So if uh, people listening to this like absolutely have to ask a question, um, I do actually try to answer those out there. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK at Keith Barlow 82 and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.